listener production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome along, superstars, to episode 185 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring an iconic figure in Australian motorsport, Dick Johnson. Smooth as silk, Dick Johnson in the Shell Ultra High Sierra. Oh, everybody's hero, Dick Johnson. Listen to the cheers of the crowd across the top of the mountain. He's one of Australian motorsport's most popular drivers, guns the big V8. Dick has done it all, and I mean done it all, in a touring car. Three Bathurst wins, five-time Aussie touring car champion, team owner, I could go on and on and on, but for mine, it's the way that DJ rolls. His sense of humour, his warmth, his ability to tell a story, that's why Dick Johnson is loved wherever he goes. Quick thanks to Emily Dixon from Shell V Power Racing Team, Dick Johnson Racing, for making this episode happen. Enjoy and laugh along with the story of Dick Johnson, a man who has never, ever lost his common touch. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Well, it's not very often you get an icon wander into the Howie Games studio, but this man is. He has done it all in Australian motorsport, three-time Bathurst winner, five-time touring car champion, one of the most loved Queenslanders there is, and a fellow that was very nice to me when I started in the V8 fraternity. His name is Dick Johnson. He joins us on the show. Dick, it is great to see you. How are you going? It's an absolute pleasure, Howie. I've uh, heard a lot about you over the years, mate, with uh, mm. with your... Uh, Trials and tribulations, so yeah, it's good well, to be here. I can remember, Dick, when I started on the V8 supercars at 10, and it was, I guess, early 2000s, so it was Ambrose, Scaife, Ingle, the Stone Brothers, tough, yep. tough men, tough time, I'd done nothing, the V8s, and blokes would kick me out of the garage, they'd literally say, piss <laughs> off, get out of the garage, what are you doing here? And you, the very first time I met you, I'll never forget it, Dick, you said, pal, pal, if you need anything, if you want any information, pal, come into my garage and ask me. And when you're battling through, little things like that make a big difference, Dick. Well, you know, that's, it's, you get out of people what you give. And, and uh, you know, if, if you're rude to people, well, you'll, you know, you can't help but be rude back, can you? Yeah, so. it, ma- it made a massive impact on me though. And I reckon in that first year, it might've been like... Radisic and someone, you blokes got more coverage out of me because of the <laughs> garage I could confidently walk into knowing I wasn't going to get the arse well, out of and, and it's still over today. Nothing's changed. Our place is still exactly the same. We don't have secrets or anything like that. It's just one of those situations where uh, if it wasn't for the punters and, and the good journalists, we wouldn't have a job. Well, I don't think I was a good journalist then, but, I was, but the, the punters <laughs> have always loved you. And this came about, Dick, you, you won't be aware that this came about the V8 Supercar media team got in touch and said, um, you know, we, we'd love someone on the sport to promote it. Um, you can have anyone. And they threw a whole bunch of current drivers. And I actually said to Tommy, who you've met now, yep. the man we need to speak to is Dick Johnson because he's not only one of the most loved people in that pit lane, he's got a heck of a story to tell. So I'm I'm thrilled you're here. Um, the, the obvious question, mate, before we get too far into it, so you and Jill have rolled in here, you've been delayed, which is, seems to be happening a lot in Australia. You're, you're 78. Like you, yep. You've done it all, you've seen it all, you've won it all, you've got family, you've got grandchildren. Like what keeps you coming back to the racetrack to, to, 
to work hard. Well, mate, the last thing I want to do is be sitting in some lamb's wool-covered chair drooling out the side of my mouth. So, <laughs> That's a fair point. So honestly, for, for me, it's just a matter of I've got to have something to do. If, if I've got nothing to do, I'm bored. I've always had something to do and this is what I do. And do you still love getting to, you know, as, as we're doing this, it'll come out later, but you're off to Sandown this weekend. Like, Do you still get a buzz when you walk into the pit lane? I get a buzz when our team does well and things like that. And, yep. You know, it hasn't been the best of years for us at the moment, but uh, we're, we'll be back there. Don't worry. It's it's coming back pretty well at the moment. Mate, all, all I read at the moment when I get past the sport pages, which takes me a while, or, or watch the news, is how tough economic times are. And, and it's something we'll talk about with you, but people probably don't understand what it costs to put a V8 supercar team out on the grid year in, year out. Like from your perspective as a businessman, because often the first thing when times are tough, Dick, that gets cut is marketing budgets. Yep. What's How's it impacting your world at the moment, the, the way the economy is? Well, look, we've been so fortunate to uh, to have sponsors that have stuck, you know, by us through thick and thin. Like this is... I've had an association with Shell now yeah. for over 55 years. <laughs> That's a good association, like, isn't it? And, you know, to be quite honest, you know, and they, they've been absolutely magnificent, you know, and and uh, between them and Repco and, and all our other sponsors, it's just been, it's it really is with good people. And, and you've got to surround yourself with the right sort of people uh, that sort of work the work ethic that our guys and girls have in the marketing department and things like that is what our business is all about, you know. And and I think um, we learned a fair bit really from uh, Roger Penske. Yeah, okay. I think that um, when he came out here, it, it changed things for us in a lot of ways. What did you learn from him, Dick? The one thing that came from from him, he said to me, the number one thing that you've got to do in, in any sport or any game, he said, number one thing is presentation. Mm. And he said, if you get the presentation right, everything else will fall into place. And presentation's a huge thing. Without giving away state secrets, like you, don't, don't give me an exact number, but can, can you give me a general, because people won't understand what, like, can, can you give me a general Let's not say specifically your team. Say a top V8 supercar team running a couple of cars in the championship. Like, what, what would your budget be in a typical season nowadays? Well, you know, to, to do things properly, yep. you're looking at at least between eight and ten for two cars. <sighs> eight and ten mil, mm. right? What, what, what would I have said if it was nineteen seventy five? But I come to you and I said, "Dick, here's ten mil to run your team." <laughs> wow, nineteen seventy five, mate. Look. Well, in 1980, I think I had 30 grand. That was right. about it, you know. Wow. So yeah. that's amazing how much it's grown, isn't oh, it? Well, everything's gone, you know, up and up and up, and the game's got bigger. And and I think where things really changed for supercars was when because we were just a bunch of guys that were were drivers and team owners, and here we are trying to market ourselves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the big step forward back in '96 was when. Coco came on board, Tony Cochran. Yep. And uh, IMG, like they were working with IMG at that point and then they took it over themselves a bit later on. But that's where we really started to sort of hit our straps and things developed and and the people that uh, we had there and things just grew from there. 
before we go right back, what, like, were you born? Because I've never heard you call anything but Dick. Were you like Richard Johnson in your, on your birth certificate? What are you? Just like you, mate. Yeah. You, you, you are. Your mother calls you of your your real name. Mum calls me Mark. Yes. Mark, right. Yes. My mother called me Richard. My right. sister still call me Richard. Right. Uh, but <laughs> it doesn't fit. Welcome to our guys, Richard Johnson. No, it's not working, no, does no. it? Well, and to to <laughs> to tell you exactly how it came about. Yeah. Is because you had to write your name on the windscreen of the car, and to put Richard Johnson was too bloody big, so right. I just put Dick Johnson. Right, so that's how it came <laughs> and about. That's where it came from. There you go. So at, at like primary school, you would have been Richard. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Yeah. I can't picture you as a Richard. <laughs> so, how, tell tell me about your mum and dad and how motorsport. Um, like we're going back now. How yeah. motorsport hit, hit your wheelhouse? To be honest, my dad he was an Irishman, and you know what they're like. They yeah. they they get a get a greyhound dog and try and paint a bus on the side of him, if you know what I mean. But, <laughs> but, but he's, he was the sales manager of Eagers, which was the, the the big uh, Holden dealer or Holden distributor in Queensland. And, yep. And uh, I, I just, well, he, he wanted me to be a swimmer, right? And when we were at school and, and as a real young age, we were every morning up at 4.30 and down to the valley bars from, we lived at Cooparoo. Right. Down to the valley bars and all that. And he he always had drama getting me out of bed at 4.30 in the morning, as you can imagine. <laughs> I can. As, as a sort of, you know, eight, ten-year-old, eight-year-old. <laughs> so I did a deal with him. I said, well, you know, I'll get out of bed, but you've got to let me drive the car to the pool. Right. right? So I'd drive from Cooparoo all the way down to the valley. Which would have been how far? Oh, probably about 15, 20 k's. At what know? age? I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, mate, you wouldn't see a car, you know. <laughs> Not at 4.30 in the no. morning. <laughs> That's a cracking story. And what, what, why did you want to drive? What was it about the car? I just, I just love cars. I used to stand at the bottom of the driveway and wait for my dad to get home from, from work so I could drive it, you know, 30 metres up the buddy. Really? The driveway, yeah. So, so you, you just loved it. You loved the feeling of driving and what, did you get under the bonnet? Did you figure yeah, out how absolutely. they worked? absolutely. That's, you know, I was all self-taught and that sort of stuff and, you know, that's where it all sort of happened. And and uh, so once I got to all of that and, you know, I was pretty good at the swimming side of things. I had a record that stood for 25 and a half years. In, in what? What in distance? 50 metre freestyle. But no one knows you because <laughs> as an 11 year old, because it would be yeah. Richard Johnson. Yeah, so yeah, no one yeah, actually yeah, would exactly. know it's you, Dick. <laughs> so you, you're a good swimmer, but yeah. like, at, at school, like what, what like how, how far through did you go I through? I started school? off at Brisbane Grammar, and yeah. you know, that wasn't my forte because for some reason um, my parents wanted me to do an academic course rather than a manual training type course. And because I was. I was not one of these people who wanted to be a bloody doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. The only difference between a solicitor and a catfish, one's a bottom-dwelling slime sucker and the other one's a fish. <laughs> so. You've got about a lot of lawyers that have worked for you over the years who probably wouldn't be that happy to hear that, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're the busiest people on the planet these they days, are. aren't they? <laughs> they bloody are. They are. <laughs> Um, so, so did did you go through like what you would call a year 12 or what did you do? Yeah, I went through... Um, um, Year, year 11, I think, I'd, okay. I'd, I'd sort of kind of had enough. And, and what was the plan then? Well, what, what, I went and got an apprenticeship yep. as a, uh, I was a apprentice fitter and turner yep. because I wanted to be a mechanic. Dad said, you're not going to be a grease monkey. Right. So I ended up 
starting fitting and turning, and which was not me. Um, although I did learn a fair bit about that in machining and stuff like that. So I went and got myself a job um, riding a push bike with a basket on the front for uh, a company called Martin Wilson Brothers, which were were, were actually a parts house. Oh, like uh, autom- spare parts, parts right. spare parts, and then I then I ended up. So believe you, it or not, well, I worked. You... I worked with Motor Supplies, which was Repco. Ended up being Repco. So, huh. so you, what you're on your bike? You were delivering parts, parts around... and that round round the city and that. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I read, which really, it's funny when you go back that um, because my my father he, he had his um his name pulled out of the um the the ballot with conscription with Vietnam, and mm. thankfully he did officer training. Thankfully he didn't have to go to Vietnam. But I read that you you did yep. training. So yeah, tell I did. me about so this. I didn't know. Well. Was that a pull your name out of hat job as well or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a birthday thing, you know, like right. the birthday. And uh, Can you remember when they pulled her out? Were you flat? Yeah, not really. I, like, to me, it was as a, what, as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old, yep. big deal, you know. So what, where'd you have to go? Well, I started off at uh, Kapuka, which is, you know, down where the, the training was for three months down there. Yep. And uh, I was in the very first intake. So it was an intake to potentially go to Vietnam. Yep. Okay. Anyway, I was in the very first intake of, of the uh, of the national service. Yep. And strangely enough, you're going to believe this. Yeah, but go on. Two huts down from me in a different platoon. Yeah. Uh, would you believe was uh, Peter Brock? No. Yep. Pennington. Yep. If only you knew what would come to pass between <laughs> the two of you. So was that a couple of years? Yeah, two years. What was it like? What was the training like? Look. I learned an awful lot, you know, like how to dig a hole and fill it in again. <laughs> and and I ended up breaking a cartilage on on my right knee in a in a big march that we had to do, a 25, 25 mile thing oh, we did. Yeah. And uh, at that point, they end up saying, "Well, they come up to me and said, you know, you and this other guy, because I was in what they call Ramy, because I had a mechanical background. Yep. I was working as a mechanic." at a service station at that time. And uh, anyway, they said, uh, yeah, you can go into Ramey, which for me was terrific because that sent me back to, to Belimba in Brisbane. Yeah. And that's where I uh, was asked if I wanted to go. I said, yeah, I don't mind going, but they deemed me medical unfit because of my knee. Right. And uh, otherwise I would have gone to Vietnam. Wow. But, Sliding um, doors, huh? Yeah. It sort of got me to a point where I thought – when I get out of here, what am I going to do? Because all I wanted to do was work on cars 24-7. Yeah. And uh, there was another, a mate of mine, uh, and he uh, he was a mechanic. And so we decided that we'd start off under the house at home. Once I got out of the army, I did the two years. Yeah. And, and when I got paid out, I had 870 bucks in $1 bills. So you had 870 in, of them. In, in $1 bills, mate. The old that brown was, ones. That was the payout. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, geez, I like the feel of that. It's a big stack. <laughs> because all I wanted to do was go motor racing. And if there's no way now and I could have, you, you could afford to do it on wages. So I thought the only way to sort of get this going is to be self-employed. Yep. So that's when we started off under the house at home. As what? What were you called? We were just Johnson and Covington Automotive, you know. <laughs> so you were mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we were because <laughs> 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 
because I worked at in the army. I did a stint up at uh, at Canungra, which is the jungle training centre up, up in Queensland. There, as as a mechanic in the in the workshop there and things like that. So, which is where they went before Vietnam. Yeah, wasn't exactly. It? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we uh, set up under the house at home, and that was pretty cool. But um, I got chucked out of there after a while because. At about 2 a.m. when you got the block and tackle hooked over the beam under your old man's bed, <laughs> rattling around, you know, it didn't didn't go down too well. <laughs> so, so I borrowed the $8.50 off my mum to, uh, to to get this little shed down at Stanley Street in, in Brisbane. And what was that, the rent, was it? Yeah. Right. $8.50, mate. So the Johnson Automotive business moved, yeah. first moved, yeah. to this little shed. A little shed. It, you could fit uh, three cars in there. That right. was it. And you, what, were you just uh, general mechanics on cars? Yeah, yeah, just yeah, all sorts of cars. That's where I ended up meeting Jilly. You know, she was... Oh, tell me, because Jill's out there now. now yeah. and, and I remember, as friendly as you were, Jill was always... When I would come into the garage, you'd say whatever you need, pal, and Jill would always have food on hand yep. in in your in your <laughs> garage, which I appreciate as a skinny bloke. So where'd you meet Jill? Oh, I cut one of my customers' grass. Mate. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> so Jill come in with a customer? Yeah, on an arm of a customer. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, they, well, she did all she did all the hitting, not me. Did she? <laughs> I'm looking at her. She's listening to this. <laughs> Who did the hitting, Jules? Is it you or Dick? No, nah, she's pointing at you, Richard Johnson. She's saying, so she came in on the arm of a customer. Well, yeah, she, well, I was used to work on his car and all that sort of stuff. But, right. Yeah. There you go. That's a great. So, when, when's your when's your first race? Like, what's the what's the first thing when you're actually in a car race? November 1964. 64. So, how old were you? No, 19. Yeah, 19. 20, yeah. Right. And and what what was it? How'd you go? FJ Holden, I uh, won my first race ever. You won your on first, the first race meeting, yeah? Did you? Where was it? Tell me the about la- it. The Dick. Lakeside. Right. Yeah. So, well, how many laps was it? Did you think you'd win it? Like... Well, no, it was about eight laps or something right. like that. But then I had to. We get the car. I'd take it home. Yep. Um, it was on an A-frame. You know, you'd one of my mates towed it out there on an A-frame, <laughs> and I'd um, I'd sort of put all the exhaust and everything back on it and drive to work the next day. So it was the car you drove to work? Yeah. <laughs> story keeps getting better. So <laughs> so when you win your first race at Lakeside, right, and then drive it back to work the next day, did you win because you're a naturally talented driver or did you win because you're a bloody good mechanic or a combination oh, of both? I don't know. It was just one of those things where, you know, I was obviously faster than the other guys around me. But, right. You know, which was, you know, it was good fun. Was there, was there a, a check or a prize or anything for winning oh, your yeah, first right. race? Right. So no, one, it was just... One pound three and six, maybe. Right, yeah. right. And, and can you remember, like you've been driving since you were eight, as you explained to us, can you remember, like did it, the cars grabbed you and the mechanic side, did, did racing grab you? Like was oh, there yeah, something, yeah. was I, it the racing or was it the winning? Well, even before I had a licence, I used to ride my push bike from Cooparoo yep. to Lakeside. Which is how far? 45, 50 k's. <laughs> you could have been in the and, Tour de France. And I, and you, could have been, I, <laughs> you could have been one of the first triathlons. Triathletes stick with your swimming and your cycling. <laughs> well, we were on the south side of Brisbane, and that's right over the north side of Brisbane. And, right. And uh, I didn't have any money to get in, so I used to crawl under the fence, you know. To go watch. To go watch, yep. <laughs> and and uh, that's because even before that, my dad, he took us up to uh, – to Strathpine when Strathpine used to run, which was out near Lakeside, to be quite honest. Right. 
at, at Petrie, yeah. And what did your dad make of this budding racing career when he said you're not going to be a grease monkey and now not only are you fixing the cars, you're racing him, was he, was he getting supportive at this stage or was he, no, you're wasting no, your he's, life he's, he was fine. It's just, you know, he said, I don't care what you do, to be quite honest. He said, but whatever you do, make sure you're good at it. Right, well, good advice. Yeah. So when would have been the first race you went in where there was actual prize money? Well, it didn't take long, really, because the, you know, the FJ that I had, I ended up getting an old taxi, uh, which for 80 quid years ago, which had done 19 million miles, and <laughs> and I sort of turned it into a race car. And I hope you took the taxi light off the yeah, top. Yeah, 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 all of that, mate. <laughs> but, but, Tuned her up a bit. But, but my brother, we were working on it under, under the house at home, and my brother's, um, this was sort of two nights before the race meeting at Lowood, actually. Right. And uh, we decided that the roof was nice because the car was uh, – I got a body shell because it, the cab was just rusted out. It was a piece of junk, you know. Yeah. So I ended up getting a body shell from a wreckers. Yeah. And uh, – which was only crashed in the front so I could bolt the front of the uh, the taxi on there and it was sweet. And it had a really nice blue roof, this, this body shell, and that was really clean. And uh, so I ended up under the house at home. I said to me brothers, I said, this has got, you know, one one white mudguard, one green thing here and a bit of blue there. I said, we've got to do something. We can't go like that. And the meter in there. <laughs> yeah. So I said, we're going to have to paint this thing somehow. Yeah. So Dad had all these paints and that under the house, you know, which was like house paint. And so we thought, there's not enough to do the whole lot, so we better mix a bit of stuff up here. So, so you made yeah. your own colour. Yeah, it was end up being lilac. You know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It was a weapon? Mm. It go well? Yeah, it was good because I had to borrow the the, the, the head and cab. I had the, the short motor, but this mate of mine... I borrowed his, the cylinder head and carbies off his car, which had three SUs and things like that, and the way we went. And we shared the car at the, at the race meeting. Back to Dick shortly. Next up on the show, a man with a swag of Olympic medals, instantly recognisable with his shaved head and big grin, the powerhouse that is Michael Klim, never beaten in the pool and today never beaten by health issues that have hit Michael hard. C-I-D-P. Can you pronounce it for me before I attempt to? <laughs> Chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. Basically, the, the myelin, which is the, the sheath of the nerves, they get kind of frail and the messaging doesn't get, get sent properly to. But polyneuropathy means the extremities of your, of your body, so either your fingers or your toes, and kind of works itself, itself up upwards the, the limbs so um for me touch wood it's only affected my my legs but you know i started having little symptoms um which weren't alarming at the time but i had a you know started getting some numbness in my quads and getting some my feet used to get really cold at night and just really basic ones some tinkling in different muscles and but when things got really bad and i lost the ability to walk within six months we you know, we we knew there was a big underlying issue there. What was your worst day, Klimi? What what looking at the journey? What's been your worst day with it? Oh, um, but I, I I can't can't pinpoint a day, but is actually no, I can. Um, I couldn't get through an airport once in in KL. Um, 
yeah, I got got stuck. I couldn't get out of the airport. I couldn't walk. My my legs sort of gave way completely. So that was pretty bad. That is Michael Klim next up on the show. Let's get back to DJ. So y- your knowledge, before we get to Bathurst and, and some of the famous stories. So I, 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 I talked to you about when I started the pit lane. I'll never forget it was, um, I reckon it was at Queensland Raceway. It was the, the paperclip. Yep. And it, it was in your garage because it was the only one that used to help <laughs> me out. And Paul Radisic came in um, and there was an oil leak. Someone told me there was an oil leak. And I don't think Neil Crompton was that impressed that I was in the pit lane. And, and I crossed up to him and I said, oh, there's a there's a issue with one of the oil lines. And he answered me back and he's like, well, there's plenty of those. Which one is specifically marked? Give us some more details. And I was like, Dick, to be honest, I was like, I've got no idea what he's even asking me. But, but And I would imagine some of your drivers now would be as removed from the mechanics of what goes on in their car as I was at that stage. But like you're building the things. How much does that help you oh, to immensely. drive them? Immensely. Like, like I yeah. presume you know what they can do and how far you can push them. Well, especially, you know, going back then when, you know, you you couldn't, like today you can drive the things just flat out the whole time. But yep. back then you had to sort of look after certain things. And, and if something was going wrong and you had the mechanical knowledge of the car from front to back, you could sort of drive around a problem. Okay. Where... You know, a lot of the drivers today, mate, they just, until it, oh, the car stopped, you know. <laughs> you know. So Will Davis calls over the radio for Jeff, no, it's Will's, just stopped. No, Will's, Will's Will would be good, good actually. Yeah. Will, Will would be good. What was Scotty McLaughlin like? Yeah, he's pretty good He's too, pretty good. Yeah. He's pretty good. Yeah. He'd been no, though, good. you know, some drivers don't have mechanical sympathy, yeah. if you know what I mean. Okay. And uh, others do. And uh, we're fortunate we're the ones we've got, have got a lot of sympathy. So racing aside, not racing here, when did you first go um, to Bathurst? When did you, mate, did you used to drive down with your mates to watch or like when did you first yeah, go yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Um, mate of mine, I used to do his, build his car. He used to run him. His brother ran this uh, Mini. Yep. And I used to I used to build that. And uh, his brother was a real good mate of mine and we used to drive down to Bathurst. From, from Queensland? From Queensland. We'd drive down Friday night after work. Yeah. And uh, we drive home night. Sunday night, right, and right. be at work on Monday morning. So, what year are we talking? Um, oh, back in like nineteen sixty-five. And what was the crowds at Bathurst like then? Were people still oh, camping yeah, yeah. and all that type oh, yeah, of caper? No, yeah, there was a, a a period there where it got a bit feral, and right. but that got cleaned up pretty yeah, well did. by um, Coco and supercars yeah, and that. It, well, it had to. It had to. Yeah, it was. It was you know getting out of control. You know, but by only a very minor few like. But now it's just, it's a family-orientated yeah. event. Yeah, it's a fantastic event now. Oh, there, there's certain famous stories, Dick, and I, I could spend all day here chatting with you, but you give me a good background. The 1980, yep. everyone in motorsport knows the story, but everybody outside doesn't. And I'd forgotten about what it did to your career. So set up the story for me. What what happened with The Rock? And then we can talk about how that catapulted you into the national consciousness. Well... Going back into uh, late 70s, like I, in the 70s, I, I was, my first run at Bathurst was in 73, right? Yep. And that was in a, an XE1 Tirana with Bob Forbes. How'd you go? Um, 
we uh, we end up fifth oh, outright. Right. So you know, for a you know privateer entry against you know the Holden Dealer team and the factory forwards in it. Yeah. But um, and from that point on, um, things developed and Confederation of Australian Motorsport, yep. which had their licensing and all that sort of stuff. And if you didn't have, if you lost your your road license, you you lost you 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 couldn't race. So you if you got I mean? done for speeding, you, you if, couldn't race at Bathurst. Yeah, if you had your license taken off you, you couldn't. You know, oh. you, they'd take away your cams license, right. right? So it got to a point where poor old Johnny French, he because uh, he was driving the, the Falcon of Brian Burt Ford. Yep. And uh, anyway, he he lost his license because of not a road incident or anything like that, but because a car was that he was driving and one of the Alphas got pinged for, I don't know, some illegal part on the car or something. Okay. Thing. So he lost his licence and Bertie said to me, well, how about, because I was a staunch Holden person, you know. Yeah. And because uh, he, he said, uh, why don't you come and drive my car? And, mate, at that point when I was spending all my money trying to, you know, keep wheels on the road and things like that, uh, I couldn't give two hoots. It could have been a it could have been a Renault Dolphin, and I would have been in there at 100 mile now if somebody else was paying the bills. You know, <laughs> I love it. I love it, Dick. <laughs> and as it turns out, um, Bertie then starts getting into the, the the swing of Bathurst and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I started driving his his two door Falcon, and uh, we run at Bathurst you know, with Vern Shoop in a couple of years, and huh. and uh, yeah, so. That's how it all started in the two doors. And then it gets to 1980 and you're leading the thing, yeah. Leading up to that, though, Bertie, um, unfortunately, at a very young age, died of cancer. Right. And uh, that was in 1978. Okay. And so here I am once again saying, what am I going to do now? I've lost my ride. Yeah. But the guy that actually took over the the business, um, just out of courtesy, he said to uh, the, the guys, he said, well, We'll keep the team going for the next year, right? And then Cams, who uh, changed the rules quite often yeah. at the end of 79, said, well, we're going away from these cars and we're going to go into uh, the XDs and the, and the Commodores. And they said, oh, that's too expensive for us, you know, because it was – they'd spent about, you know, 20 grand a year or some damn thing to run these things, but Oof. which was, you know, Big pretty good money. But yeah. anyway, as it turns out – at the end of 79, um, they decided, well, that's it. You know, we, we can't afford to go big time, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there again, I was left with just a helmet and a, and a pair of boots and that was it. I said to Jilly, I said, I'll tell you what, we need to have a good shot here, I reckon. Um, I'll tell you what, we can mortgage the house and I'll buy all the bits off Brian Burt Ford because it was, a lot of it changed over into, into the XD. Yep. And I did a deal with Brian Bertford that they would supply me with a, a second-hand, a second-hand uh, XD Falcon. Mortgage the house to do this. Yeah. And how, uh, how did Jill feel about this? She, she's always stood by me. So. What a legend! What a legend Jill is out there. <laughs> yeah, she's giving me the thumbs up there. And uh, anyway, I said, "Well, I reckon we can we can go out and win because I reckon this car is going to be a, a real gun thing." Yeah. And that's what we did. We sort of built a really good car. I had a Shell service station. Yeah. Right. And uh, I, so I've, 1980, I said to my brother, I said, okay, you're running the survey now. 
and I'm going uh, working at home, I'll go building racing. a race car, you know, right. which we did. And as it turns out, you know, it was a pretty good sort of a rig because we'd sort of mortgage the house and all that sort of stuff. And I said to Julie, I said, well, this is, it. This is our big shot. We should be half a chance here, you know. So we went to Bathurst and uh, I think it was 10 grand for pole position. Uh, second on the grid was worth jack shit, you know, so. And where'd you finish? Second. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, we, we got the jump on them at the start and we were away and we were sort of leading the race. And How far was, in? How far in was the incident? <laughs> believe it or not, I was on, on, on lap 17. 17 of 161 or whatever. Yep. What happened? We were sort of started the race and I said, listen, I'm gonna, I'll run reasonably hard at the start because I reckon that we got the pace and and I know that there's a, the uh, Camaro's Achilles heel is, is the brakes and I don't think Brocky's Commodores just don't have the legs and that's what happened. And Brocky was trying that hard that he clipped a car across the top of the mountain um, in the early laps in one of the lapped cars and so I put him, he was end up a lap down on us yep. and uh, KB came in on about lap eight or nine with the brakes on fire. And so I was just cruising. I thought, this is pretty cool. And for those people who don't really know what, what, what Bathurst is all about, where you get to the cutting, which is a very steep part of yes. the racetrack, you know, and it's very blind. It, it, it crests a bit of a hill and a hump and it turns right a bit. I don't, I don't think watching on TV, I, I remember it flattens the it first out. time I got there, I was like, wow, I can see why. I went for a run round it the first time and I was cooked halfway because I didn't realise how steep the whole thing yep. was. Yeah, it's really, really steep. So you're fanging through the cutting. I've come out, out of the cutting and they have yellow flags waving because there was obviously something there. And that was in the days when they didn't have safety cars. They used to have tilt trade trucks sort of run around and pick up all the broken down Commodores, you know, so. Which I saw a clip of this and, and uh, it took me back to Jules Bianchi in Suzuka when he went off in F1 and hit the recovery vehicle and ended up claiming his life. And yeah. you're fanging around here at various stages and there's a tow truck yeah, parked truck, on the side yeah. of the road. Like, so people need to think, like, the tip truck's got its its bottom down on the track. Like, if you'd hit two wheels, it would have been like the Duke's Hazard. Like, you would have been on two wheels down well, the this, mountain. Well, it had the tray up and all that. It was just there going to pick, obviously, Whoever up, yeah. something or other. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, it's a very blind part of the racetrack. And when I saw the flags, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just take it easy. But a lot of people don't realise that, it's only eight metres wide, the track there. Mm. And they had the, the truck was there and then this rock was on the road and, you know, the truck driver pulls up almost right next to the blooming rock, you know. How big is a rock? Like a basketball? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And uh, and as it turns out, I, I just lobbed there and I... Lobbed there. There, was, there wasn't enough room to get between the truck and the rock and the rock and the bank. Yeah. So I decided I'd try and go up over the bank and and I ended up, took the rock out, the left-hand side of the car out. He was leading Bathurst when disaster struck. Oh, we've had another bang and there's at the Dick race. Dick Johnson. Dick Johnson. I, I just couldn't believe my bloody eyes with these galoots up there. How fast would you have been going when you hit it? About, you know, 120, 130 k's. But we ran into the people uh, who were living on the hill 
And they said, Did you, do you really know how the rock got there? And I said, no. And they said, we were sitting there without 50 metres either side of us and these two guys come wandering up the hill who'd been out on the gas all night. And <laughs> Typical were, Bathurst type <laughs> of uh, crowd. And, and they were obviously pretty secondhand. And, uh, and the only reason they said they took notice is that they sat down right in front of them. And one guy sat on a rock with oh. his head in his hands and the other guy was lying down with his head on a rock and playing with another rock with his feet and it dislodged oh. it accidentally. and it was on the track. Yeah, and it rolled down onto the track. And there was no fences or anything there then. It was only just earth banks, you know, so that like now they've got yeah. concrete walls the whole way around. So so, so you, you hit it and I was looking back at it, you're – I didn't understand at this stage you and Jill Morgan's your house. So you're making comments to them about, um, like, you're done. This has wiped me out. I- I'm-, I'm done here. And you- you've said that on national TV. Well, unless I can get $40,000 to rebuild the car, you've lost me because I've just had a gutful of the whole bloody operation. And and so, and so then what what happened, Dick? Did, like, punters start well, ringing into... Well, Mike Raymond, who was the... The voice the absolute of absolute champion, the Doyen yep. guy. He was the the voice of motorsport, and and uh, he said we couldn't believe it. He said our switchboard is just absolutely jam packed with people ringing up because it had been a long time since a Ford had been anywhere. It had been dominated by Commodores and Holden the whole time, and and they said that our switchboard just can't handle it. He said these people just ring up want to donate money to. Make sure you, you get back on the road again. Well, it was an emotive. Like when you spoke, you you looked to be a broken man. You're like, I, yeah. I'm done here. I'm out. So how, how how many like how much did they raise? Well, one of the callers was a guy by the name of Edsel Ford the second, right? Who was out here in Australia. Edsel Ford the second. Yes, he's still a good mate of mine today. Right. He was the vice president of Ford Australia at that point, because Ford don't didn't have a factory team or anything like that, and he rang up and said, look. For every dollar that's donated, he said, I'll match it one for one. What a champion. And and anyways, it turns out, because poor old Edsel probably thought, oh, you know, five or six grand, that's not a problem. <laughs> Drop in the ocean. Well, yeah. So 87 grand later. <laughs> He's got a bill and a half. <laughs> which he paid more than gladly paid and said it was the best money he's ever invested in. So you got 170,000 plus Yeah, well, that, that really set us up for the next year, right, at least, you know, to go racing. And then on top of that, Ross Palmer, who was Palmer Tube Mills, he said, I'm going to I'm gonna give you our whole advertising budget, which was 50 grand. Wow. So I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're sort of, you know, we can build a brand new car here and because Ford helped us out there, you know, with bits and pieces and, and, uh, and you know, a very discounted price on parts, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, we got this car going and to me that was probably the most pressure I think I've ever sort of felt. Because you had the nation on you, the people would have helped you out. Correct, yeah. And it got to the point where I thought, well, gee, you know, we really got to make this work. And uh, fortunate enough for me, um, we won our first touring car championship at Lakeside in 1981. With, with a tremendous battle versus Brock. 
It was. Can't and come down to the last. So just before that. It was the last race. Yeah, the last race. A record crowd estimated at 20,000 had jammed into the picturesque lakeside circuit for the showdown between Johnson and Brock. The pressure was right on Johnson, trying for his first major championship win, while Brock was going for his... So whoever, whoever beat who was going to be the champion, and, and I beat him by, you know... Carling. One desperate challenge on the final corner, but Johnson held on, winning the race and his first championship. And credit him that he, you said he, he could have taken me off. Oh, yeah. I tell you what, due respect to the guy, he's a brilliant driver. Never once did he touch me where he could have been several occasions. We'll take a slight detail. What was it like racing against Peter Brock? Oh, he's, he was an absolute champion and a, and a very, very fair racer, you know. The, one of these guys that if he couldn't win fair and square, he wouldn't win. Right. He it was just one of those sort of guys. And, you know, we sort of were side by side a number of times. And, yeah. Well, it was. Uh, but, it was Johnson and Brock. That's yeah. what, And then Perkins came along. But then, <laughs> but on, on lap three, I, my front sway bar broke. Is this of the, the championship decider? Yeah. Yeah. My front sway bar broke and it's dangling down under the car. The, the arm was dangling right. down. It wasn't going anywhere. Right. A funny story, but one of the flag marshals calls in to uh, the clerk, of course, who uh, <laughs> who was, you know, I, I knew pretty well all the guys there and and uh, because it was a huge crowd, the biggest crowd I think Lakeside's ever seen. And anyway, um, this flag marshal uh, rings in and says, uh, he said, you're going to have to black flag car 17. It's got something hanging down underneath. <laughs> and his words back to the to the flag, he was, if you're game enough to come over here and do that, go right ahead. He said, but we're not doing <laughs> it. <laughs> but the car was, because it had no front sway bar, it was like a fly swap. The thing was oversteering everywhere. And yeah, and I used all the, all the bitumen plus a bit of the dirt and everything. Brocky's windscreen was absolutely smashed to bits with all the, the stuff you've been throwing back. So, so you, you, you won your first touring car championship. Yep. Just, just on that, um, obviously it was a massive shock to everybody when Peter was in the accident and passed away. Do, do, do you recall how you found out about yep, that? Do you? I sure do. Yeah. I was doing a drive day for Mazda at Oran Park, and the Dilly rang me because the chaplain had rung her right. and said. Uh, there's been a terrible accident. And, uh, yeah, it was – I just turned the phone off. It was just going berserk. And, uh, yeah, that was a pretty horrible thing. Just – it was one of those things that just didn't seem to make sense in a way. No. I, I... He had been overseas. Um, he'd only just got back, flew into Perth. He was doing this rally, this road rally. Yeah. He's a guy who had a lot of self-confidence and – we, we never believed anything like that had ever happened to him, and I think he felt the same. Yeah, and I think the country certainly felt the same, that the, the, the shock of it. It was one of those things where, you know, I, I can tell you exactly where I was and what I was doing, like when Steve Irwin yeah. was, got killed and things like that. You know, it's just one of those, one of those days, mate. So, so back to 81, then I, I was watching it, and I thought I'd better have a look at Dick's first Bathurst that he's won. And the first thing that pops up on YouTube is it's like CityLink here in Melbourne at 4.30pm on a Friday afternoon. Like No one's going anywhere. We have an enormous traffic jam. We've had a horrendous crash at the top of the mountain. 
So there's an enormous crash and they stop the race. Yep. But I, I struggle to figure out, obviously you were in front of that accident, yeah? yeah. Yep. So you're leading the race. By quite a By margin, quite a way. Yeah, yeah. So, so for those that don't understand motorsport, they said that I think it was 60% the race had been no, completed. No, it's was got it to be better than, than 70. 70 percent. 75 percent, yeah. So how are you finding out what's going on at that stage? Well, I was just wandering around because Frenchie was in the car. Okay, so you're well, not in the car. I'm right. not in the car. Gotcha, Dick. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And Frenchie was in the car and anyway, they, uh, to the TV, announced oh, I was standing behind them. Yeah, right. Uh, that because uh, 75 percent of the race has been run, uh, because it was 121 laps or something like that. Yeah that uh, the race will now be declared. We cannot have a restart. Well, that means that Dick Johnson is the winner under those conditions? Yes, he has won. And that's when I jumped up and said, thank God. Well, so you won your first Bathurst with the pressure of all those people that had kept you going? Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, <laughs> I certainly did feel a bit of relief after that Bathurst, I can tell you. That's the end of Dick Johnson Part A. Plenty more laps to come. See what I did there in Part B.